down to earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, I'm joined by the head of the Irish Defence Forces, Vice Admiral Mark Mellet. Welcome, Mark. Thanks very much, Cara. It's great to be here. Mark, most listeners will know you as the first non-army officer to head the Irish Defence Forces, but you started your career as a naval diver, I understand. And along the way, you developed a strong interest in ocean ecosystems and how they're managed. So can you tell me how you developed this interest? Yeah, well, actually, I started my career as a reservist in the Army in in the 5th Motor Squadron in the west of Ireland. But rolled on a number of years. I joined the Navy in 1976. And in the late 90s, I was over in the U.S. Naval War College and... Um, we did a lot of study in security, but one of my areas of interest was ocean governance, and I was um, instructed by Professor Lawrence Judah at that time. And Lawrence was from University of Rhode Island, and he really brought me to a point whereby there was a, a great interest in the whole area of integrated ocean management. I'd never looked at it from the point of view of being an ecosystem. It was just fascinating to see the variety of ecosystems that were there. Uh, at that stage, I began to look at a deep water, a vulnerable marine ecosystem called cold water coral. And, you know, few people realise that we have this massive resource, of, for instance, off the West Coast, as rich as the Great Barrier Reef, except it's 600 metres below the sea and you don't see it. And I studied that with a, a doctor in Galway called Anthony Grehan. And I went on then to work with him on the whole area of special areas of conservation to protect these very vulnerable marine ecosystems. And subsequently, I went on and did my PhD in this. And my whole question was, who owns biodiversity? And if you don't put a value on it, uh, it actually is subject to Gareth Hardin's famous tragedy of the commons, where it's actually it's actually exploited to the point where it's destroyed. And much of our cold water coral reefs have been destroyed, as well as a lot of uh, vulnerable fisheries, such as orange ruffy, which uh, I also had an interest in. I don't know if you're aware, orange ruffy that are being caught up to recently some of those fish were still swimming, alive. The same species, same individual fish were alive when Darwin was on the Beagle, you know, theorising on the evolution of mankind. They live to be over 200 years and it's extraordinary to see that fisheries now is, is more or less wiped, off, wiped out off our west coast. And how are the orange ruffy in danger of being threatened? Well, they're, they're gone. Uh, effectively, there is no uh, ruffy fisheries anymore. So instead of it being a sustainable fisheries, it is in fact a mining industry. So um, tragically, we're not landing orange ruffy anymore. I was reading about orange ruffy actually before the show, and and they don't start breeding until they're about thirty years old. 30, that's exactly correct. And they 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 actually show on above the sea mounts, which are kind of carbon mounts that are on the break, the continental break, where the the, the I suppose the continental shelf goes from about two hundred meters down to thousands of meters. And you have these massive seamounts, and on top of these are very rich ecosystems of cold water coral. And sitting above them in the shoal is the, is the shoal of orange ruffy. And techniques in the past have been to land the deep water trawl on top of the seamount, destroy the coral reef. And the coral reef could take up to 8,000 years to form, but it could be destroyed in 30 seconds. So it's the deep water trawling that's actually destroying the ecosystems of the orange ruffy that's yes. then threatening them. No, thankfully there have been put in place special areas of conservation to actually protect uh, remaining areas of cold water coral and they're currently being exercised and in fact our defence forces through our naval service 
police seize on behalf of the Sea Fishery Protection Authority. Global fish stocks are being threatened around the world and presumably also here in Ireland. What do you think we should be doing more of to try and protect fisheries? Well, I think there's a general requirement to move towards uh, larger marine protected areas. And I know there is a policy drive on that side. And I suppose if I had a comment, uh, no-take zones are the, the best from the point of view of, uh, I suppose, enforcement. You can put a geofence or an electronic fence around it, and then you can actually manage it much more easily. Um, you know, if you, if you open up a no-take zone, it's very difficult to, to enforce and to police. So I, I do know there is an interest in, in moving in the direction of marine protected areas, and, and that, I think, would be good. Because these would become refuge in large areas in terms of... Uh, areas where you would have spillover on the edges of marine protected areas where you could have sustainable fisheries. But I think there is a requirement to move along on marine protected areas, and I know the government is considering that. You've talked about big data and technology as facilitators in, in monitoring these things and enforcing. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the Navy to police this stuff more effectively through technology? Well, there is, yeah. And I think that in, in due course, we're going to see automation and you're going to see areas like uh, data itself, algorithms, um, analytics being used to actually identify um, where we need to be enforcing most. And in fact, over the decades, the Naval Service has built up a huge raft of data through its vessel monitoring system. And and we, we, we do know now where the sensitive habitats are with regards to regeneration of particular stocks. So we can focus our attention on where the vulnerable fisheries are at particular times, where they're spawning. And, and, and we do that working with the Sea Fishery Protection Authority. So that is part of our, our modus operandi. But I suppose looking to the future, if, if, if I was to say one thing that I suppose mankind has, it has extraordinary intelligence, extraordinary access to technology. And if we are to deal with issues such as climate change, this is where the opportunity is to leverage this technology and leverage this brain power and intelligence to actually make the right decisions, which are critical at this point. We're, we're very close to, to uh, irreversible tipping points and it is a concern. You've spent your life on the sea, including growing up in, in Mayo. Are you worried at all about what's happening to the ocean with regards to its chemistry and the changes that you've seen? Yeah, I, I suppose, to put it frankly, we as a species would not be alive today were it not for the ocean. And, and people step back and say, what do you mean by that? The, 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 the most CO2 that we produce is absorbed by the sea. About 30, a third of the CO2 we produce is pr- absorbed by the sea. Another 50% more or less stays in the atmosphere and about 20% is absorbed by terrestrial ter- 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 ecosystems. So the, the, the ocean is actually absorbing a huge amount of this carbon. But the downside is that the actual uh, ocean is becoming more acidic. And when I go back to my vulnerable marine ecosystem of cold water coral, that's threatened, as are species of fish being threatened by acidic uh, levels rising in the ocean. The second point is, I think the very reason we may well survive as a species is because of the ocean. Because when you look at it in the context of the potential on renewable energy from the marine, it's extraordinary. And I'm really delighted to see the government is moving with its plans for up to five gigawatts by 2030 of, of uh, w- marine renewable energy. And that'd be predominantly fixed and floating wind. And also with ambitions up to 30 gigawatts uh, after 2030. And that'll be fixed again, uh, wind, solar and floating wind. Also with the potential of, of wave energy. And when we move to wave energy, it is extraordinary what could happen. You have the potential of a wave energy device with one square metre of energy device producing up to three or four hundred times the same as a wind energy device. So Ireland will become a battery for Europe if this all moves according to plan. And I, I think uh, parallel to that, you have the new grid lines and the interconnectors in terms of Celtic link, I think, is and Greenlink 
across the UK and to mainland Europe. That means we can feed the energy we produce in our marine into Europe and not only just generate our own energy requirements, but also generate energy for our neighbours. You're listening to Down to Earth. My guest is Vice Admiral Mark Mellet. Mark, you've mentioned that the Defence Forces have been involved in things like on offshore renewable energy. And I was also reading that in 2015, uh, one of your Navy ships prototyped a smart kite to increase their speed and generate wind energy. Can you explain a bit how that technology works? Yeah, well, there, there is a, in fact, there's a company called SkySails that have been developing a technology around SkySails. And these are large kites and they use a, a, a system whereby they can increase the energy potential from the kite that actually can give up to um, two megawatts of power. Now, two megawatts of power on, on one of our modest ships at the moment would give us up to about eight knots. So the Aeolus project was built around the idea, well, what if you had that kite who was able to give you a propulsion and then you were to put sensor platform into the kite you could turn, a, let's say, a, a tactical ship into a capital ship and you could put synthetic aperture radar, a wireless connection, uh, over the rising communication system. And we've done all that. And we worked with Cork Institute of Technology through a cluster we had at the time, the Irish Maritime and Energy Resource Cluster. And this this was extraordinary. SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, uh, Enterprise Ireland, all backed this project and brought it to a proof of concept. And now there is a, a company looking at the, the possibility of that technology rolling out. We don't have kite sails yet on our, on any of our ships. Uh, the, 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 I suppose the technology is still in development, when the time is right, and I think at a future point, this type of technology will come in where you will see ships with kite-type technology. Do you think our nine Navy vessels could be entirely powered by wind energy, or is this just a supplementary energy I, source? I think it would be supplementary. You're always going to need sprint, and, and the, the, the sprint will probably come from... Um, conventional energy types, although we are looking at the idea of uh, potentially into the future hydrogen type power cells. And um, once again, going back to the idea of offshore renewables, you know, one of the concepts there is to actually have the whole capacity to create green hydrogen, which could be done from the ocean. So you're actually converting the ocean into hydrogen, which is green, and that could give you a propulsion vector. Wow, that's exciting. Uh, I've also heard that the Defence Forces have solar photovoltaic panels on 50% of your military installations. Over 50%, in Over yeah. 50%. And we're, we've, we've got plans to actually increase that, not just solar, but also looking at heat and we're also looking at um, uh, wind. So the, we're, we're doing, in fact, we've been to the forefront, I think, in terms of our whole drive in terms of energy efficiency. We were the first in the world to actually um, adopt the ISO 50001 standard in 2012. And we, we, we've been reassessed on uh, 2012, 2015, 2017 and 2020. So we're to the forefront and uh, the head of our engineering department, uh, Jim Burke, is really very much involved with the European Defence Agency in terms of uh, bringing his knowledge to play, not just in from the Irish point of view, but in the broader uh, community of military families in Europe. You and your troops have been on the front lines of a lot of tragic res- rescues in the Mediterranean uh, with respect to refugees trying to flee war-torn places like Syria. And I've heard you talk about climate change as a, a vector in causing instability. How much of a role do you think the Defence Forces will play in the future with respect to addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, well, right now we're in 14 missions in 13 countries and very much involved in terms of trying to bring stability and safe and secure environments for very vulnerable populations. But there's no doubt 
uh, climate change, climate breakdown, biodiversity loss are actually driving security issues. And up to recently, I think the last in when Germany was on the Security Council, they were driving this agenda item. And I know Ireland is picking it up now as it sits on the Security Council. But coming back to the, the I suppose, the pointed end, there is no doubt a regular migration is driven by climate change and climate breakdown, greater competition for resources. If you take Mali at the moment, where we have two missions in Manozma, which is um, with the UN and the European training mission uh, in Bamako, which uh, also with Europe, uh, we have two sets of troops down there. And what, are in particular, our Army Ranger Wing are seeing in the area of Gao in, in northern Mali is a whole area of, of conflict, which is often driven by the impact of climate change, whereby you have greater increased challenges between, I suppose, traditional nomadic um, type Fulani herders and the more settled uh, farmers like the Dogan. And what happens is extremist armed elements, you know, aside up with both communities and there's greater friction. And as as resources become more challenged, the, this friction becomes more of a point of conflict. And there have been some serious tragedies there. We're doing our best working with the UN to bring that stability there. But areas such as the tri-border between Mali, between Burkina Faso and between Niger are really a tragedy and the difficulty for us if we if we don't deal with these kind of root causes of insecurity it forces irregular migration and irregular migration then arrives in terms of problems like we've seen in the mediterranean over the last uh, four or five years the defense forces in particular naval service have rescued over they've contributed to the rescue of nearly twenty-three thousand people either directly rescuing it about 17 to eighteen thousand, or actually supported the rescue of others where they were put on other ships and brought to safety this is something that is, is, is going to be featured in the future because climate change continues to be a vector of concern. And when you couple that with biodiversity loss, you can have resource degradation, you have increasing uh, desertification in terms of growing areas of arid or, um, I suppose, barren areas. And then, of course, you have the problem with, with population increase. Population increase is a concern from the point of view, if you look at Africa as a continent in particular, probably the continent most impacted by, by climate breakdown and yet the least responsible. And it it may well see population increase up to double by 2050 or 2055. You mentioned the Security Council and it's very exciting that Ireland has a seat on it now. And also John Kerry has been appointed in the, to represent the US on the Security Council. Does this give you hope that we might solve the climate crisis? Yeah, well, I, I, just, I, I met John Kerry in Cork a number of years ago. And, um, Minister Coveney was hosting an event for small island development states. Uh, and it was part of our, our, our move towards the, the bid for the seat on the Security Council. He's such an impressive individual. He has such an understanding in terms of the impact of climate change. At the end of the day, you know, the dealing with climate change is not going to be a sectoral issue. It's going to be dealt with through collaboration, through multilateralism. You know, no one actor has all the answers. It's the collective that have the answers. And when I look back at, you know, the, the major extinction events of the last millennia, you know, you can say one thing, dinosaurs or reptiles were not responsible for extinction. They didn't know what's going to happen. And even if they did, they couldn't do anything about it. We are responsible. The Anthropocene is responsible for the climate breakdown we have at the moment. We are responsible for the impact of biodiversity loss but we have the wherewithal in terms of our intellectual capacity and the technology I spoke about to make a difference. But we can only do that if, as a collective, not as individuals, not as individual states in competition. So multilateralism is a principle and multilateralism is the principle on which we engage with the Security Council. So I'm hoping that, that climate change, climate security will become an issue in terms of Security Council. 
My thanks to Vice Admiral Mark Mellet for this edition of My Green Life. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening, and thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com and on the Newstalk app. Next week, we'll be working up an appetite to discuss the future of food. But until then, stay curious.